Good morning, Hope. I'm Mark Woodkowski. I get to open the word today. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we counted as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. We've had a two-week break from the book of James. If you were with us the last couple weeks, we had Reformation Sunday that we celebrated along with brothers and sisters around the globe. And the week before that, we had a lovely message from one of our missionaries talking about the book of Daniel and as a way of comparing the way that we engage with our world today. And so we are back in James, and it's a little tricky because the last time we were in James, we were dealing with verses that directly flow into these. You even notice if you got your text open and you're looking at what Mark just read, that that third word, be patient then, is now changing from the rebuke God gave to the wealthy, now he's talking to the wanting. And what's beautiful about the, this text and the text that was before it is that God gives a warning to both sides. It's not like he rebukes the wealthy and has nothing to say to the needy or the wanting. He has some concerns regarding them as well. I mentioned a, a little bit ago the, a biography I was reading about the pastor who was a hundred years before Spurgeon in the same London church. And his biographer was the pastor that followed him, told the story of his birth and briefly said in by way of explaining his home context, that he was blessed to neither be rich nor poor. That's interesting. We might in our culture think the blessing would be not being poor. But he thought it was actually also a blessing not being rich. He had exactly, their family had exactly what they needed. Well, if you look at this text, to break it apart, even to learn how we read our Bibles, the structure is pretty simple. There are two commands. Vera already gave us this clue. There are two commands, one positive, do this, one negative, don't do that. The positive command is verse 7. The negative command is verse 9. And then after each command, there's examples. So verse 8 and end of 7 and verse 8 is an example. And then verse 9, command And then verses 10 and 11 are examples. And then finally, verse 12, I'm not even really going to touch. Sorry. It's not talking about swearing as in cuss words, which is probably what you think. It's talking about taking oaths. 
And it's a larger topic that's touched in other parts of Scripture. Uh, Several times Jesus makes comments about that. So the next time we go through a gospel, I promise I will cover it. But I want to hone in on what is being said in those two commands and the general thrust of this larger text. So let's pray. Ask that we would hear these two commands. We would understand the examples and that the Lord would minister to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things of your law. Form us and shape us. Break through our calluses, the callus of our heart or the brokenness of our circumstances. Lord, in the midst of all of those variables, help us to hear what you want to teach us and help us to see how good of a God and faithful of a God you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you would think James would be way more accommodating after spending six verses just apocalyptically declaring the doom of those who with their wealth abuse the poor. That's basically what verses one to six. If you look at the language in verses one to six, what we covered three weeks ago now, it almost sounds like the book of Revelation. So maybe you think that when God turns to the poor, it would just be this immediate sense of relief. But here's what he says. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Well, he didn't say until next payday. He didn't say just for a short little while. Did you hear what he said? Until the Lord's coming. That's not a misprint or a translation error. There is no question that that is what is being communicated. Just let that sit for a minute. When you are dealing with certain issues, in this case, economic hardships, struggles financially, uh, injustices of a system that abuse you by some power group gains in wealth, God's response to you, he's going to deal with them in his own way, in his own time. Verses 1 to 6 says he's not just telling you, hey, deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it. God's going to deal with it. But to you, he says, you just wait for me. Now, the context in which James is writing is not to middle-class Christians who simply want the newer iPhone or a bigger flat-screen TV. It's arguable that he's actually writing to Christians who were being treated unfairly by wealthy landowners, people that maybe owned a small farm, but they couldn't sustain any longer, and these wealthy landowners bought up their land and then hired them to be workers and maybe treated them unfairly. It was not exactly our situation. Yeah, you got to wait for the new iPhone. Or you can't get the big screen TV, I'm sorry. No, legitimate injustice. Legitimate need. Crises even. God says, be patient until the Lord's coming. That's a remarkable statement. Now that primary command of that verse is patience. In fact, the word patience is used four times in these few verses, and the word perseverance is used twice. Patience is 
expectant waiting on the Lord. That's what the command is trying to say. You, you're waiting with expectation on the Lord. So notice what that means. He determines the when, he determines the what, and he determines the how. You are waiting with expectation. Perseverance means fortitude in trials. Perseverance really is the spiritual strength to endure something difficult, something that causes struggle or hardship. You endure with this level of patience and that the Lord is good, he is gracious, he will respond, his timing is perfect, I will trust in him. And the example he gives is of a farmer. Look at, look at that middle of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. The, the farmer can't plant the seed and the next day try to pull up the soybeans or hope the corn can grow a little faster. They simply must wait for the rain, which the Lord would need to supply for the growth, for the Lord to provide. There's a waiting in due time by his common grace. God will give to whatever degree he chooses a harvest. And when the harvest is ready, it can be received. Until then, what do you do? You wait. Again, maybe it just doesn't sit as encouraging as you would want. And let me warn you of this. It might just be for all of us, is that it is hard not to make God our cosmic butler and divine therapist. The default of spirituality in our culture is that God is our cosmic butler and divine therapist. So we just expect some kind of action. And when he says, wait until I come, he said this 2,000 years ago. He still hasn't come yet. That's a long time to wait. But that text immediately pushes on us to let God determine the time and how much and in what ways. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, you too, verse 8 says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, the whole New Testament speaks of God's coming that way because it, the resur post the resurrection of Jesus, there was only one more thing to happen, his return. So it's the final stage. Even still, it doesn't give immediate sense of relief. God may meet our needs in certain ways, but it doesn't exactly tell us how. Now, one, one truth I think we can gain from this is this. Christians must include the coming of the Lord, as both verse 7 and 8 are talking about, and the new creation, the renewal of all things, as part of God's blessing and provision. Like, we need to not have a closed story 
in a closed universe so that everything God is going to do for us and give to us will happen in our lifetime or in what we could call the first creation. In fact, I almost want to break up the history of the world as having two creation, two, two aspects of creation. The first creation was what we're in now, and then the new creation. But I wonder if we think too quickly just of this life now and not our life then. And we assume that God's going to answer everything in this life now when actually his promises might simply be fulfilled in that life then. God will be good on his promises. He will heal every disease. He will unite all his children. He will heal every broken relationship. There will be no starving children. There will be no conflict in Gaza. There will be no disputes of power or injustices in our world. But it all might not be finalized until the new creation. We need to think of the story of the world as having a first and a new creation, almost like a first and second half. I was in Boston uh, 2019, I think, and I saw all these shirts, 03-28, or, or March 28th. I'm like, what is March 20? Am I missing a holiday? So I asked a Bostonian, what is March 28th? He's like, you don't know what March 28th is? He's like, did you watch Super Bowl, t- the 2017 Super Bowl? Patriots, Falcons? Anybody remember that story? The Patriots with this unknown quarterback named Tom Brady were down 25 points. And at one point in the game, it was 3 to 28, hence the March 28th. And in the last 17 minutes, the New England Patriots scored four touchdowns and they won by three points. And as a bit of a rip on the Atlanta and Falcons, I guess. I mean, it's not, not like in Chicago I'd heard anything about that. Of course, we hadn't been to the Super Bowl in a long time. But all these Bostonians talked about March 28th. In fact, in some circles, it is still considered an unofficial holiday. Celebrating this radical turn. Now, at the end of, I remember this with my kids, because I had no favorite in that team, thinking, what a boring Super Bowl. I don't care who wins. I was kind of rooting for Atlanta, to be honest with you. But I just want to see a good game. And it ended up turning out to be a really fun game. But the game didn't just happen in the first half. It actually took two halves. Is that not also how the Bible breaks up human history? It's not just the first half. There's two halves. There's the first creation, which is what we're living in now. And then there's the new creation, which is the second half. Yet what we tend to do is not live with any sense of satisfaction or hopefulness in anything related to the second half or the new creation. We're putting everything in this half. But that's not how God views time. Because there are going to be things that strike God's people. There will be things that your family faces, and those will be remedied. Some of them in the first half, but all of them in the second half. And God is faithful no matter what half he decides to score four touchdowns. 
He is faithful. So patience, this command of patience, is expectant waiting on the Lord. We know he will be faithful. We don't get to tell him when he has to be faithful. We don't get to say how. We wait on the Lord. Whether it's economic injustice or our own financial situation, as this text speaks about, but I actually think this text also points to the many other things for which we would need to wait on the Lord. And I think that requires at least two things from us. If you're going to obey the be patient until the Lord's coming, for whatever that circumstance of yours or mine is, it means that we will submit our lives and our circumstances to the Lord. That is hard to do. That we may say, Lord, if it's your will, heal me now. or Heal him or her now. But if it's your will to do so in the second half, your will be done. That's hard to do. That is hard to do. One of the errors, by the way, I think of the prosperity gospel is that it takes all those very true promises of God and it demands them to happen in the first half. That cancer will be removed or financial blessing will come your way. All of that will be true. But most of that in the second half, in the new creation. The prosperity gospel ignores the second half and only wants your best life now rather than your best life then. You and I, if we're going to obey the command, which is not hard to understand but very hard to do, to be patient until the Lord's coming, it means that we will submit our lives and this, our circumstances, to the Lord. And it requires also, secondly, a a contentment with what we have. Again, hard to do. A contentment with maybe our finances, as this text would say, but other things. A contentment with our health. A contentment with our relationships, some of which might need radical healing. A contentment with aspects of our lives that are burdensome or difficult. We would submit our circumstances to the Lord and we would seek Contentment, again, way easier to say than to do, waiting on the Lord. Verse 9 gives the second and last command, and it's a negative command, meaning a don't do, and then it gives some examples. Here's verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. My summary in that second point this morning is this, Christians are not to grumble against or, get this, compare themselves with the situations of others. James is turning to a common temptation Christians face when there's economic hardship and it's comparison. We are masters, subversively comparing all the time. Every aspect of our life with the lives of others. Imagine it with the financial situation in the first century that, to which James writes. While one Christian was enduring severe financial stress, another is happily living well beyond normal means. And to be honest, if they're in close proximity, it's pretty easy to tell the difference. 
Imagine in the ch- one of the churches to, to which James writes, several people who are land workers, not land owners, and then a landowner decides to come to church in his wealthy attire, and he's sitting in worship. Amazing grace he's singing with all the workers to look at him with some angst, some anger, justifiable even. And he sits there in church with all of them. The Lord does not want us to grumble against one another. That word grumble is winking at you from the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the story of the Israelites, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they grumbled. They grumbled all the time. They complained about every little aspect. And they weren't just complaining to their human leaders like Moses. They were complaining about God. God was so frustrated, he said, we're going to do Israelite 2.0. And he literally let one generation die off. He said, we'll see if their kids do any better. Here's the point. When we wait on the Lord, we allow the Lord to care and provide for us, his children, indifferent even more uneven ways until the second half, the new creation. It just will be uneven. It will not be fair, like the basketball tryouts where the six-foot-five guy stands by the five-foot-two. It's not always going to be even. It just isn't. Why is that? Like, Why isn't it just fully even? I think we can just... We can, Surmise a couple of reasons. One is sin simply does not spread out evenly or equally. There's disparity between nations. There's disparity between families. There's disparity in beauty, in intellect, in athletic prowess, in ability to earn an income, in in health. You, You can have some people that literally, I know of an 80 year old that has never taken a pill. And I lost friends when they were in their 20s to cancer. Sin doesn't spread out evenly. Talking to one of my kids recently, they asked, why does our mom have to have ALS? It doesn't spread out evenly. I don't know why it's our mom and not your friend's mom or two houses down the street. I don't know. There's not an answer to that. It's just not spread out evenly. Another reason would be that there's just simply a mystery to the ways and the whys of God's working that we must submit to him. It is beyond our pay grade. Why he formed someone in their mother's womb to be six foot five with perfect athletic ability and the other to be five foot three and they can't catch a cold. There's no explanation for such things. And we have to leave that to the Lord. Again, this is where contentment, submission of who we are and who God made us and what his common grace provides must do. When, maybe just by way of warning, when we sinfully compare ourselves to another or our lot to another, We actually make ourselves to be a judge. And hear this, it's not that we're judging them, we're actually judging their God and their maker. Again, look at verse 9. 
don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Again, the implication is that's not your job. Then James gives two examples for us to consider. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, notice how many times he's speaking to us as brothers and sisters. You'll see it again even in verse 12. Four times he's calling us children of God and siblings. He's pastorally exhorting us to embrace our circumstances, to endure with perseverance our struggles, to not look down on those or their God when God blesses them with bounty and you have less. It is to find contentment, to expect with waiting for the Lord to be the one to give. First example, verse 10, brothers and sisters, an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, faithful servants of God who were treated with hate-filled evil and even martyred. Imagine getting that job. All right, I want you to go to tell the Israelites they're totally idolatrous. They will probably kill you. Is there a janitorial job open in the temple? No, that's for you. Another example, verse, verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, Job is an interesting example because he actually wasn't perfect. He did grumble, but that reflects a bit you and me. What did we just sing? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Job started with this principle and conversation and counsel, much of which was bad, was encouraging him to question, to compare, to get mad at God. And God put him in his place and reminded him who he was and who Job was not. Job did complain, but he never abandoned his faith. He continued to hope in God. He also received Ultimately, the blessing and the provision the Lord provided, even if only in the second half. So as we close, as we hear these commands to be patient until the Lord's coming and to not grumble or compare with one another, let me, let me point out two key applications that are actually present in verse 11. At the beginning of verse 11, it says this, As you know... We count as blessed those who have persevered. Now notice that. It's not saying the blessing comes because it's all been good. Hashtag blessed is not that scene at Thanksgiving when you're sitting around the fire with a stomach full and a bountiful family around you. It's actually the person who is wanting, suffering, and broken, and is trusting in the Lord. That there is a blessing. Verse 11 is saying, and Scripture says elsewhere, there is a blessing that comes to those who persevere. To be blessed is not the same thing as to be happy. Happiness normally suggests a subjective emotional reaction. It feels good. Blessing only actually comes when it doesn't feel good. Blessing is the objective 
and at least biblically, the unalterable approval and reward of God. Actually, blessing is not just based on common grace. Hashtag blessed. Blessing in the Bible is that approval by God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or that reward by God, that sustenance, that that reality that God is present. In a way we can't even put a finger on, it doesn't have economic or even material value, there is an approval and a reward given by God to those who are patient and stand firm in the Lord. And I don't even know how we explain it. But I guarantee, I've heard from some of you, when a bad thing has happened and you look back and you see God in the midst, not in spite of it, not not without the suffering, but actually in the midst of it. Think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't that God didn't have them thrown into the fire. It's that he was present in the fire with them. That's a very important distinction. It's not like God is concerned that you never touch fire. It's that when you touch fire, he is present with you. The last thing to note in the last phrase, the last sentence of verse 11, a separate sentence all on its own and likely wanting to summarize the thrust of everything James was saying are these words, the Lord is is full of compassion and mercy. Now again, you read verse 7, that first sentence in 7, you think, wait until the Lord's coming? Oh, that's a long time. What do I do in the meantime? What is God doing for me now? He ends by saying, oh, and don't forget. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The application would be this, even if it does not feel like it, We know that the Lord, in regard to our situation, in regard to our brokenness, in regard to our economic hardship or all the other things that this text could point to, we know that God is full of compassion and mercy toward us. Now here's the thing, and here's the truth that verse 7 said. It might not come until the second half. And I find it interesting, even if there's not a very good parallel, that oftentimes at the end of a first half, because a team knows that there's more of a game to come, with 20 second, 27 seconds left and the ball on their own 20, they'll often take a knee. The Bears should probably do that on every play. But notice they take a knee. Now, if it was 27 seconds left in the second half, It doesn't matter if it's 4th and 27, they're launching that ball. But what do they do when they know there's a second half? They wait for the second half. And they take a knee. And that image of taking a knee, beyond its football, calling it a down, is a significant posture that the church declares. Because at the name of Jesus, this is talking about the second coming, what's it say? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And sometimes, even when the answer is not yet, 
or when the answer is not in the first half, the Christian takes the knee before King Jesus, knowing full well that there is a second half when every sickness will be healed and all hunger will be wiped away and every war will fully end. There will be one king. There will be peace. There will be shalom in the second half called the new creation. And we simply wait. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Living with lament, enjoying God's common grace, but crying out to our King, come, Lord Jesus. We've talked about it before as we close. Let me remind you what we have learned so many times elsewhere in Scripture. We may not know the why when we're facing difficulties. We may not know the why. We may not know what God is going to do. And we may have no idea when. But as this passage again has taught us, we do know the who. And he is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we want to entrust ourselves to you. And it's hard to do. We'd much rather be dealing with the problem of bounty the problem of wealth rather than the problem of want. And Lord, this text, as much as it speaks about finances and hardship economically, it addresses so many other broken things in our sin-filled world and our sin-filled lives. And many of us here struggle with sickness and relational brokenness and crises that overwhelm them. And for them just to be told to wait... That maybe not till the new creation. It's so hard to do. So would you minister to your people? Would you remind them that this game is two halves? And that you will fulfill all your promises even if the answer for now is not yet. That you would help them seek submission of their lot in life. Submission of their circumstances. And in a serious pursuit of contentment as disciples of Jesus. And Lord, help us encourage one another to do that as well. But thank you that you are full of compassion and mercy. Remind us of that when you feel distant and we feel alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.